listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode two, Ulysses S. Grant vs. the World. Just wanted to say we have been just blown away by the listenership from episode one, our, our two-part Wayne McKinley episode. Thank you guys so much uh, for spreading the show and listening to you know a two-and-a-half-hour episode about our 25th president. Uh, we can't believe how many people uh, joined us for that journey, and we hope you enjoyed it. Today we'll be talking about really a, a top five most famous Ohioan. The hero of the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant. Grant was born and and lived in southwest Ohio for 17 years. He would return to Ohio many times in his life, but Grant right now is the president that is really rising the fastest of any president uh, here in the 21st century in presidential rankings. We'll talk about why that is, and we'll look at his underrated presidency, which is finally uh, beginning to be properly uh, recognized. By historians in a national perception. We'll look at his life in Ohio, his youth in Georgetown, and just how the introverted son of a small town Ohio tanner would become one of the two or three most famous Americans of the 19th century. We'll spend the bulk of our time discussing his presidency, the evolving historiography of those two terms, and his improving legacy. The show really won't focus on 1861 to 1865, the war years, how he goes from a, you know, a poor farmer in the St. Louis area to the most famous American general since Washington. You can get that information anywhere. Watch the new Grant series that's starting tomorrow on the History Channel. Three-night event looks really cool, and that will obviously focus on his presidency, but really more so on the Civil War. We sit down today with Dr. Ronald White Jr., historian and famous Lincoln biographer, and the author of the 2016 New York Times bestseller, American Ulysses. A fantastic book. Uh, we've got a link in the show notes. So glad that Ron was able to join us. We also chat with Lee Schweikert from the U.S. Grant uh, Boyhood Home and Schoolhouse Museums in his hometown of Georgetown, Ohio. Lee talks with us about his childhood, his time at West Point, and how he gets that name, Ulysses S. Grant, because that's not his real name. You can go to usgrantboyhoodhome.org to visit their sites, and hopefully you can visit in person in Southwest Ohio soon. Also, we talked with Ryan Sims, the Associate Professor of History at Mississippi State University and the archivist at the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library on their campus in Starkville, Mississippi. And we talked with him about Grant's presidency and some of the foreign policy stuff. And just Ryan was an awesome guest, so glad he was able to join us. But we've got so much to get to, so let's get started. It's episode two, Ulysses S. Grant versus the world. guest today, Ron White, is the author of American Ulysses, released in 2016. It was a New York Times bestseller and the winner of the William H. Seward Award for Excellence in Civil War Biography. We talked to Ron about the importance of the early years of a biography subject, not just because Dr. White thinks it's important, but also because Ulysses Grant thought it was important as well. We'll look at his first 17 years in Ohio prior to his halcyon days as commander-in-chief. 
Well, that's a very good question, Alex, because I actually had a couple of early readers say, do you think the reader will be willing to be patient enough to work through these early years? I like to say when I'm speaking to audiences, think about our own lives when we're 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. These are the formative period of a person's life. And I love the quote that, of Grant where he says, I read but few lives of great men because biographers do not, as a rule, tell enough about the formative period of life. What I want to know is what a man did as a boy. So I spent time on his years, obviously, growing up in Ohio, 17 years, and then I spent a week at West Point trying to understand what it must have been like for a 17-year-old boy from the then West to come and spend four years there. So, yeah, I, I, I decided, and I do this in all my biographies, actually, the one that I'm now writing on Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, I want to know what's, what forms these persons. Hiram Ulysses Grant was born on April 27, 1822, in Point Pleasant, Ohio. He was born to a tanner named Jesse Grant, an abolitionist in southwest Ohio, down on the Ohio River. Ulysses was raised in this pro-abolitionist family, even attended the school of John Rankin in nearby Ripley, Ohio, on the banks of the river. We talked about Rankin and the Rankin House, which is still a site managed by the Ohio History Connection, uh, but we talked about them a couple seasons ago in our episode, Ohio vs. Slavery, about the Underground Railroad. Rankin's house is the destination of hundreds of runaway slaves, as he would work on getting them north via the Underground Railroad to Cleveland and on to Canada. We talked to Lee Schweikert, the U.S. Grant Homestead Association, about Ulysses' early years and his father, Jesse Grant. Georgetown is, uh, is about 40 miles southeast of Cincinnati, 10 miles uh, north of the Ohio River, and sits on a plateau above White Oak Creek Valley. It's Brown County. Brown County was uh, carved out of uh, Adams and Claremont County. Jesse, as a young man, worked for Owen Brown, who was John Brown's father. Owen Brown was a uh, was a kind of a, he was an abolitionist, but he was kind of low key. Of course, his son John was anything but low key. Uh, that's where I think Jesse's uh, abolitionist leanings got started. And he also had a brother, stepbrother, I guess, uh, in Maysville by the name of Peter Grant. Peter was an abolitionist. He was in he was in Kentucky, and he was the president of the Kentucky Abolition Society. So <laughs> he was Jesse had some had some real influence on him as far as slavery is concerned. Ulysses, of course, picked a lot of that up. He also went to school at Rankin's Academy in Ripley for a term in 1838 to 39. Anytime we have a, a great author like Ron White, we are compelled to ask about their research process. Ron worked on American Ulysses for seven years, and his research was done meticulously. We talked with Ron about his years researching General Grant and his time he spent learning about the general here in Ohio. I did, right from the beginning, absolutely. I, I went to, to Point Pleasant where he was born but lived only one year. And then I have, to this day, friends in Georgetown where he grew up, and I tried to understand what would it have meant to grow up in Georgetown, about 55 miles uh, east of Cincinnati in the early decades of the 19th century. He, he went one year of school across the Ohio River in Covington, so I went across the river to try to understand that private school. He then went one year of private school in Ripley, and uh, the Ripley Public Library was very helpful to me in trying to understand the kind of anti-slavery impulse the Underground Railroad 
that was a part of Ripley. So yes, I tried to understand what it meant to grow up in Ohio, which was the West, which was in many ways almost still the frontier as Grant was born in his early years of growing up. Jesse Grant was a tanner. This would definitely be considered an essential job in the 19th century. Tanners created leather, which Lee Schweikert from the boyhood home down in Georgetown, Ohio, explains to us is basically as prevalent as plastic is today. It's a wonder that Grant didn't stay in Ohio and take over his father's business. That's what most people did if your family had a successful business. They would apprentice and eventually take it over. There's one problem. Ulysses hated the tanning business. And for good reason. It's a nasty line of work. Jesse Grant's tannery will be a news site for the U.S. Grant Homestead Association. So it's donated to the Ohio History Connection. They're working on developing it as an additional grant site. We talk with Lee about the business of tanning. On the Ohio frontier, tanning was a vitally important business. You're making uh, leather out of animal hides. And the leather, of course, was there was no plastic. We have kids come to visit the homes. Sometimes it's hard to convince them that there was a time when there wasn't any plastic. But uh, leather was used for so many things. Uh, everything was a, was a nasty business. farmer who kills a butcher's of beef for food or a hog uh, kept, kept the hide. He has a mule or a horse died, kept the hide, killed the deer, kept the hide, hauled the hides in, sold them to the tanner. So the tanner's working with these hides are dirty and hairy on one side and got flesh and blood clinging to the other side. And you got the stink and the blood and the flies and Ulysses didn't want to have anything to do with it. He just hated the tannery from the get-go. As we studied Grant's youth, we were struck by how unremarkable his upbringing really was. He was a quiet kid, introverted, is how uh, Ron White describes him. He hates blood, he hates hunting. Yet he goes on to be a general in the bloodiest campaigns in American military history. He hates public speaking, yet becomes the President of the United States. We ask Ron White about what he saw in Grant's youth that would pretend you know, such a famous uh, future, and his natural ability with horses, and the importance of that to a 19th century observer. Well, what you've lifted up is often what I find the irony, of, is it not, of biography, that here's this man who is, it doesn't like blood, who, unlike all the boys around him, was not involved in hunting, who was very reticent in public speaking. I kind of call him a late bloomer, (laughs) which again can be encouraging to others. I think he had latent qualities of leadership, but you, you don't see all of these things except in one sense, he was this remarkable young boy with horses. And so people would bring their horses to him. He was the original kind of horse whisperer. He didn't, he didn't, deal with horses in a rude or strong-armed way, but in a gentle way. And this is hard for 21st century audiences to understand, but his audience would have said, well, a person who's really good with animals or good with horses in particular, that says a lot about his qualities of character, which his audience would have known, but our audience doesn't. Ulysses' life was changed when he visited a neighbor's house, the Bailey's house, in 1839. He wasn't going to college. The Panic of 1837 had nearly broken the grants and millions of other American families. But West Point was free. If he got nominated by a member of Congress or accepted, Lee Schweikert explains how Hiram Ulysses Grant also going to West Point changes his name to Ulysses S. Grant upon his acceptance to West Point. 
West Point business came came about uh, when uh, uh, Bart Bailey, who was Bart Bailey, just lived uh, about half a block north of the Grants. He was a good friend. The Baileys were good friends of the Grants. He had a, an appointment to West Point. Got to West Point and, and uh, flunked out. And the story they tell in Georgetown is that. Ulysses went up one afternoon to get some milk from Mrs. Bailey. Mrs. Bailey's reading a letter from Bart telling her that he's he's had some problems and he's not going back to West Point. And he knew that he didn't have to pay for it. And I think that's what kind of really grabbed him about West Point. Because uh, they, at the time, uh, the country was going through kind of a uh, financial problems. And uh, he was wondering how he was going to get the money. And, of course, West Point would have been a perfect solution. So when, uh, when Jesse decided he wanted to... Uh, send Ulysses to West Point, he had to go to his congressman to uh, get the appointment. And his congressman's Tom Hamer by that time. Jesse and Tom had had their falling out. Hamer very graciously said, of course I'll appoint Ulysses because he'd known him all his life. When he wrote the letter of appointment, he was uh, in the last few days of his term of office in, in Congress and probably pretty busy. He couldn't remember Ulysses, didn't remember Ulysses' full name. He hired Ulysses Grant and uh, he thought his name was Ulysses Simpson Grant because Simpson was his mother's maiden name. So he filled the paperwork out for Ulysses S. Grant. Meanwhile, back here, Ulysses had a fellow make a chest for him, take his stuff to New York in, and the guy did a nice job on the chest, put his initials in the chest in brass tacks. Ulysses took one look at it and said, that's not going to work because his, his name's Hiram Ulysses Grant and his initials spell hug. He said, I'm going to get teased. So he took the tax out and decided when he goes to West Point, he's going to sign everything Ulysses Hiram Grant. They didn't have a Ulysses Hiram or Hiram Ulysses either one. They said, we got a Ulysses S from Brown County. If you want to be Ulysses S, that's fine. If not, go home and start the paperwork over. And uh, at that point, Ulysses just said to heck with it. And, and uh, that's the only time <laughs> that's the only time I know of him ever giving up on anything. But the bureaucracy of the federal government kind of got to him, I guess. <laughs> So uh, that's how he got the name U.S. Grant. Worked out well for him, though. He graduates from West Point on June 30th, 1843. He was five foot one, 117 pounds when he went to the academy. He was a late bloomer in, in more ways than one as he grew six inches while he was at the academy. You know, Grant probably should have been in the cavalry, but that's for the higher-ranking students and cadets. He was a middling student. We talk about his years at West Point with Lee Schweikert. He was 21st in a class of 39. There were 60 in the original class. Uh, he, matter of fact, he held a high jump record for 25 years at West Point. He got a lot of got a lot of demerits, which affected his standing and his class standing because uh, he didn't uh, adhere to the spit and polish too much. He was uh, kind of sloppy, I guess, with his uh, shoes and, and uh, his dress and so on. So, uh, so a lot of demerits. Grant's first assignment in the Army was to go west. He was stationed outside of St. Louis. It's here that he meets Julia Dent. They were married on August 22, 1848, after Grant returned from his decorated service in the Mexican War, a war he called a wicked war. He never agreed with our invading of Mexico, but he did serve with distinction. We talked to Lee Schweikert about Ulysses S. Grant meeting Julia Dent and his rich, slave-owning new in-laws. Julia was the sister of one of his roommates at West Point, Fred Dent. Uh, and when uh, when Ulysses graduated, his first assignment was Jefferson Barracks. 
just outside of St. Louis. The events lived about five miles from uh, from Jefferson Barracks. So Fred had told him to go over and visit the family. So Ulysses did. And uh, I think second trip over there, I think Julie was gone the first time he visited. The second trip over there, I think she was there. And that was just must have been love at first sight because Fred Bent Sr., uh, Julia's father, had a kind of a plantation there. He had uh, owned uh, several slaves. He and uh, Jesse Grant, of course, with Jesse's abolitionism, uh, they never really quite got along. <laughs> and uh, when Ulysses was in the White House, both, both Fred and, and uh, Jesse liked to go to the White House because they felt like they were at the center of the universe at the White House, but when they were both there at the same time, one stayed in the White House and one stayed in the hotel because they, they just didn't get along at all. Ulysses S. Grant was too poor to bring his family with him to California when he was there serving in the Army. After the gold rush, it was expensive to live in California, much like it is today. He was terribly depressed without her. This is where the rumors of Grant's heavy drinking took hold. So he was likely kicked out of the Army because of his drinking. But we talked to Ron just about Julia and Ulysses, and how opposites attract in this love story. Well, I had thought from the beginning that the story of Julia had been very much underplayed, part of our whole not looking at the role of women in American history. And so I was struck first by their relationship, the fact that she was pretty well educated for a young woman in her day, and that they did have this wonderful marriage. And so I was struck by the fact that in the White House years, People would come upon them, and they would be holding hands like a bunch of bashful lovers. And this was, you know, like 25 years after they had been married. And so I sort of said, well, what was it about them? Interestingly, again, I'm always interested in irony or paradox. They were kind of a marriage of opposites. I mean, he was this quiet, if you will, introverted person. She was very much extroverted. And they would put on social events at the White House, and he would stand there somewhat quietly, and she was just terrific. I mean, she loved these events, and she was just the belle of the ball in these events. She, she loved what she was doing. And so I, they, they formed a fascinating partnership, loving each other, and she appreciated him, respected him, supported him, was kind of a political counselor, but not really. And so I just wanted to lift up their marriage. The battle between his father, Jesse Grant, and Julia's dad, Fred Dent Sr., lasted their entire marriage. The Grants would live near the, the Dents for the bulk of their marriage, but he made trips back to Ohio, but he never lived there following leaving for West Point at 17. We talk with Ron White about the family feud between the Grants and the Dents. Absolutely. No, this was a contrast, too, that his family... Uh, in Ohio, his father was strongly anti-slavery, and Julia's father owned 30 slaves. At their marriage, we don't know the full story of this, but it, it seems that the father and mother of, of Ulysses did not come to the wedding because they were upset that he was moved, marrying into a slaveholding family. And her father gave her four slaves as a wedding, wedding gift. And he was a pro-secessionist, a pro-slavery person, ultimately at first very doubtful of Ulysses S. Grant as a kind of a vagabond soldier. He wanted his daughter to marry someone more substantial, a businessman or something like that. But afterwards, he lived in the White House, and of course, he became incredibly proud of his son-in-law. Ulysses S. Grant falls on hard times in the 1850s. 
forced out of the army in July of 54 due to the repeated instances of drunkenness, he returns to a new home in Galena, Illinois. He's 32 years old, no money. His only job has been in the army. He tries to make it as a farmer, and he fails. He's selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis at one point. The panic of 1857 hits him hard. They move back in with her father. And I was shocked to hear, just before the war, a six- to eight-month period where Grant owned a slave given to him by his father-in-law to help with the farm. He's the last U.S. president to own a slave, the man who did as much in the war, besides Lincoln, to end slavery, owned a slave himself. It was something that he always felt ashamed of. We asked Ron White, is it true that Ulysses S. Grant really own a slave? He did, and if if your listeners have the opportunity, I would really encourage them to visit the uh, Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site right outside of St. Louis, which is basically the home that Julia grew up in, the summer home, which then he and, and she and, and Ulysses bought. The story of William, the slave that had been given to him by Julia's father, maybe a man 30, 31, 32 years old, strong, helped Ulysses in the field. But in 1859, Ulysses went into St. Louis and signed manumission papers. He was not, Ulysses was not doing well financially. He could have received $1,000 for this man. He never talks about it, but he signed the manumission parties. He couldn't live, I think, with himself any longer as the owner of a slave. So as the war starts, Grant rises from, during the Civil War from a colonel of the Illinois Volunteers in 1861 to general-in-chief of all the Union armies by 1864. He's in command of over a million men. He would chase down General Lee and the Confederates in April 1865, force a surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. And on April 9, 1865, the war was effectively over. And Grant was the hero of that war, held up as a savior of the Union, especially so after Lincoln is assassinated five days later on April 14th. His name is bandied about as a future president. He's only 43 years old at the end of the war. We ask you, go watch the new Grant miniseries on the History Channel this week, Grant. Uh, three parts, it's uh, executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio. Really good stuff. I saw a presentation that Ron White did with General David Petraeus, the architect of the Iraqi surge, and probably the best U.S. general of the 21st century. Petraeus, a knowledgeable historian, made his generals all read Grant's memoirs prior to the surge, beginning in 2007. It was a bold move by President Bush. He tapped Petraeus, who was one of the only generals having success with the new counterinsurgency strategy, to lead this troop surge. We asked Ron White, why would Petraeus make that required reading prior to this risky Iraqi war troop surge in 2007? Well, General Petraeus is a real student of history. He's, he's got a Ph.D. from Princeton University. And he believes that there's kind of three characteristics of uh, what, what makes a great general. At the bottom is the tactical, that you have led a kind of tactical advance. The second is kind of uh, operational, where you are dire directing not simply uh, one army, but you're directing many armies. So Grant really, at the end there, when he assumes command, in Virginia, he's really directing five armies at once. And so he called that a great gift of Grant. 
And finally, the, 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 the most important quality is a strategic quality, to understand not simply even the strategy of the military, but how this all intersects the political. And Grant had this kind of wisdom. And then finally, what General and I've heard him speak, we did an event together at West Point to, for cadets. He talks about the determination of Grant, that in spite of all the kind of Sometimes pitfalls, sometimes defeats. You know, he he loves to tell the story after the first night. General Petraeus does uh, at at Shiloh, where the, he, the the North had really been surprised and had almost been pushed back into the Tennessee River. And Sherman comes upon Grant. He's standing underneath a tree. He can't go inside the hospital, where they're amputating legs and arms. It's pouring rain, and Sherman says to Grant, "Well, we sure had our tails whipped today." And Grant says, yeah, but we're going to whip him tomorrow. And so he believes that this sense of determination in Grant is remarkable. So we were to do an event actually this month. The Grant tomb has been, there's a monument association that is sort of lifting up the power and majesty of that tomb. We're now going to do it next year after the virus on the general's 199th birthday, April 27, at the Union League Club in New York. General Petraeus is a great fan and a very knowledgeable person about General Grant. Grant would come to power during Reconstruction. This period from 1865 to 1877, the Reconstruction era was a period of great social change, political upheaval as the U.S. dealt with this tricky process of trying to readmit the southern states to the Union and determining uh, the legal status of African Americans, millions of which are suddenly free and facing violence and persecution in the South predominantly, but also in the North. Grant would become president during this incredibly tumultuous time, uh, what would be a historically significant time. It's an era that's been rediscovered by historians in recent years and is the battlefield of historiography in U.S. history today. We talked to Ron about how the revision of Reconstruction has led to the renewed evaluation of Ulysses S. Grant's presidency. Well, you know, Reconstruction, I think, is probably the last historical epic era that we have tried to reimagine and therefore rewrite. And some years ago, Eric Foner's magisterial book on Reconstruction uh, has come out, and uh, recently uh, uh, another book on Reconstruction by uh, David White of Stanford has come out. And so now, in one way, one way that Grant is r rising in the presidential polls, and he's, he's risen 12 places just in the 21st century, is because we're taking a fresh look at Reconstruction. It, it, for a long time, it was viewed as this era of corruption, and Grant was a corrupt president or a do-nothing president. And now we, as we revise our vision of, of Reconstruction, in part of this should be, not always, but should be our revision of Grant, his, basically his attempt to defend the rights of the freedmen. It began in our, in our own civil rights era in the 50s and 60s, and this is when we first began to take a fresh look at Reconstruction. It, there's been a lag time only in the 21st century, really, have we taken a fresh look at Ulysses S. Grant. Following the terrible presidency of Andrew Johnson, uh, which we will examine in episode four with our friends from the popular podcast 1865, Grant is the front runner for the Republican nomination. 
he's actually nominated on the first ballot and his acceptance he finishes his letter with the campaign slogan let us have peace he's running against new york democrat governor horatio seymour the democrats want to immediately restore the former confederate states to the union under states rights democrat state governments and amnesty from all past political offenses they essentially want to halt all of the political and social movements to improve the lives of African Americans. We talked to Ron White about one of the most racist and dirty campaigns in our history as the Democrats in the South try to take down the candidacy of Ulysses S. Grant. Yes, the Democrats, they, they met after Grant's Republican nomination, so they had to figure out how were they going to respond to him. And it really is striking, as you suggest. I mean, they called him the black Republican. They knew already that he had some interest and appreciation of American Indians. So they said that he had actually a second wife out in the West in Oregon, a squaw, who had borne him a child. So, yeah, they went, they, they went after Grant. They realized that Peter Grant was amazingly popular. So here were these very virulent attacks upon him trying to bring down his candidacy. Grant wins the 1868 election pretty handily. He takes in the results in this new hometown of Galena, Illinois, at the home of his friend and congressman, Elihu Washburn. Washburn has a telegraph line hooked up, and he's getting the results almost in real time. Grant was always a cool customer during the war and in politics. An aide described him that night, election night, 1868. He says, I quote, I often saw him show more interest in a game of cards than that night the presidency was played for. Around 1 a.m., it was clear he had won. He had over 3 million votes to Seymour's 2.7 million. He'd cleaned up in the Electoral College 214 to 80, 53% of the vote. But he probably would not have won the popular vote had it not been for some 400,000 freedmen who cast ballots on his behalf in their first-ever presidential election. Ulysses S. Grant is inaugurated on March 4, 1869, and his speech shocked many of the listeners with its, by the standards of the day, a pretty progressive Native American policy. We talked to Ron White about the inaugural speech of the newly minted 18th president of the United States. Excellent question, Alex. Yes, he surprised his audience when early in his inaugural speech, 1869, he said that the United States must change its policy towards the American Indian. Well, right away, how did he come to this? Well, he didn't campaign in 1868 Lincoln had not campaigned either. That was somewhat of a tradition in those days. What he did was he traveled all the way out to Denver. And in those travels, he came to the conclusion that the real problem in the West was not the American Indian, but the settlers and the way they treated the Indian. Now he's quickly arranged against his own best friends, uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman, General Philip Sheridan, who were all out there in the West trying to take care of these Indians. And so he decided that we had to change our policy. Well, how is he going to change that? He realized very quickly that many of the Indian commissioners were corrupt individuals appointed through a patronage system. So within two weeks of his inauguration, he convened a meeting in the White House, and he asked the leaders of all of the Protestant denominations and the Catholic Church to send their kind of mission people. He said, I think you have the kind of people in your denominations who should become the kind of agents that we want. So this was his goal, to try to enlist these people to help him change the Indian policy. 
unfortunately, and I had to cut 150 pages out of my biography. You mentioned it was 800. All of his good intentions didn't finally play out in the way that he wanted. An early episode was the discovery of gold in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And at first he wanted to protect the Indians in the Black Hills because these gold miners were rushing in, but finally he decided he couldn't. So his good intentions, if I would have had the 150 pages, I would have had to say, didn't finally play out in later in his presidency in terms of protecting the Indians. It's important to remember that this new policy, besides cleaning up corrupt, the corrupt and counterproductive Indian agency post, which his policy did clean up, his policy was one of assimilation of the Native Americans to American culture. Cultural assimilation, in his mind, was the best way to quell the violence. That, of course, pays no mind to the centuries of tradition and national identity of the Native people. So while we wouldn't consider culturally you know, sensitive or progressive policy today, at the time of 1869, it was truly radical. And as Ron says, it doesn't work. Numerous Indian massacres occur under his presidency, both by settlers and the army. The white invasion of the Black Hills following the discovery of gold in the early 1870s is a breach of every treaty the government had signed in the Dakotas. But Grant was powerless to stop it. This conflict ultimately leads to the Battle of Little Bighorn and Custer's last stand in the summer of 1876, Grant's final year the final blow to his failed Native American peace policy. You can go back and listen to our season three finale, Ohio vs. the Wild West, learn more about Custer, his last stand at Little Bighorn. Custer was a native of Ohio in the eastern part of the state. Ulysses S. Grant has risen to the brink of the top 20 in the latest C-SPAN presidential rankings, the big rankings they did in 2017. It's a massive undertaking by the network, but Grant was 33rd among presidents in 2000. So why are people rethinking the Grant administration? Ron White has been at the forefront of the Grant renaissance with his book, American Ulysses. We asked Ron, why was Grant ranked so low and what accounts for his rise in more recent presidential rankings? Well, let's start with a lost cause because Right quickly after the Civil War, the Confederate generals and the newspaper editors began to trumpet what becomes known as the lost cause, which is that the best cause lost. And the only reason they lost, the best cause being the more Christian, the more chivalrous cause, and the only reason they lost was that they were overwhelmed by the larger Union Army and by the industrial might of the North, and often then that butcher Grant. The idea, which has now proved false, that Grant's casualties were so much larger than Lee, and that Lee, up until the last 30, 40 years, was always called the great American general. Now, several American, several military historians, especially John Keegan of Great Britain, who's really the master of this, has shown that from his perspective, Grant is far and away the better general than Lee, not to derogate Lee, but that Grant is the better general. So that puts Grant down. So you're not going to trumpet someone who's defending the rights of the freedmen <laughs> if you're going to be part of the lost cause. And fascinatingly, someone such as a man named William Dunning, who was teaching at Columbia University in the early 20th century, he was one who continued as a northerner continued this point of view that the Reconstruction was bad, 
Grant was bad. And then we didn't have Grant's papers. The whole idea that of learning what did Grant really say, what did he really think, well, the Grant Papers Project began in 1967, I think it was, and didn't conclude until 2017. So we didn't really have access to all of the papers, everything that he said and thought. Now that we do, and now that we're taking a fresh look at Reconstruction, Grant is rising, probably first because he defends the rights of the freedmen. But then we look at other things that he did. I mean, we haven't even had a chance to talk about how he sort of set in motion a rapprochement with England. There was a strongly anti-English feeling because of the Confederate raiding ships that were birthed in ports in England. Well, he puts that in motion. So he's being reevaluated, and his presidency is seen in a different light. Our third guest today is Ryan Semps, an associate professor of history at Mississippi State and the archivist at the U.S. Grant Presidential Library in Starkville, Mississippi. Ryan joined us to discuss U.S. Grant's presidency and his foreign policy. The first major foreign policy crisis of his presidency was a near war uh, over the outstanding grievances with the mighty empire of England. It was all born out of a civil war dispute about the destruction of U.S. merchant shipping during the war. Ryan introduces us to the CSS Alabama claims and how Grant's Secretary of State Hamilton Fish transformed American diplomacy from the individual embassies and ambassadors directly to the U.S. State Department. The CSS Alabama was actually a Confederate raider. I was, the captain of the Confederate raider is one of my ancestors, actually, a guy named Raphael Sims, um, which uh, some people in my family are proud of and I'm not particularly proud of. But uh, the CSS Alabama was a ship that was um, a, a Confederate raider that basically it decimated northern uh, union shipping and it does this very well it's one of a number of ships uh the florida the shenandoah the georgia uh and a couple of others i think that were built by a british shipyard and then given to the confederates the united states argues that this is a violation of british neutrality the Alabama is sunk by the uh, USS Kearsarge off the coast of France, so the only Civil War battle in Europe. After the war is over, all of these Union merchants want to get paid, right? So they all start entering these claims against the government. Well, there's no more Confederacy, so they can't get any money from the Confederacy for it. So they all look to Britain because Britain built the ships, they say. These become known as the Alabama Claims. Now, the Alabama claims are one of a number of disputes between the United States and Great Britain that include um, a border dispute, um, the San Juan boundary dispute up in the uh, Great North, up in the Northwest, Northwest boundary, fishing rights on the Great Lakes uh, and up in New England, and a number of other things. And so Grant looks to his new Secretary of State, Hamilton Fish. And Hamilton Fish is the key member of Grant's cabinet because he is there all eight years. For sure. And and Hamilton Fish is probably the one of the best secretaries of state this country has ever had and is probably the least known and most overlooked secretary of state this country has ever had. Hamilton Fish uses this opportunity to take control of American diplomacy away from foreign ministers. Because at this point, foreign ministers do diplomacy in the foreign mission, right? You stay back, the Secretary of State stays back in the United States, in Washington, 
and then the minister in Great Britain, in London, the minister in Spain, the minister in France or wherever, they do the diplomacy. This is a moment where things change for, for I think, for American diplomacy, because um, Hamilton Fish takes back uh, and forces the diplomats from London to come to Washington. And they all get together to hash out all of the issues between the United States and Great Britain. And the issues they can't agree on, they agree to send to international arbitration meaning that we will, we will abide by an international ruling on these issues. And one of those two issues that they agree to go to international arbitration on are the Alabama claims. So those get sent to a, a tribunal in Geneva. The tribunal agrees that the British were in the wrong for building these Confederate ships, uh, these ships and, and selling them to the Confederates. And the, they basically are told that they, the British owe the United States uh, basically, it's, I think it's like $15.5 million. The U.S. Senate wanted more. Senator Charles Sumner, who would be really become one of Grant's chief rivals for power, proposed that the $15 million was a fraction of the damages done by the Confederate ships that England had built. The legislature wants more compensation. Some even proposed that Canada should be annexed to the U.S. to pay for these claims. They're known as the indirect claims. Ryan Sems, our guest from the Grant Presidential Library, suggests that many in America assume that Canada would eventually be folded into the United States as a territory. War with Britain is very possible. Ryan discusses how Grant and Hamilton Fish, his Secretary of State, diffuse the situation and avert war with Britain. There's a change in really international arbitration of disputes that arises out of the Alabama claims, and the United States and Britain, our oldest enemy, begin the process that led England to becoming America's oldest and most important ally. A lot of people were worried that there was going to be a war between the United States and Great Britain. And part of this was because of some, the, the indirect claims that Sumner was stirring up. Sumner was saying, you know, we know exactly how much it cost for the ships that the Alabama destroyed. But what we don't know, how much did the Alabama and what it did to our shipping and our commerce prolong the war? And so he, he basically says, from the point of the Battle of Gettysburg on, we should just value everything from that point forward and put that on the Alabama. And so what he says is, you know what would be a nice, instead of just paying us for it, you could just give us Canada. And he says, if you give us Canada and let us annex Canada, we'll call it even. And Grant, Grant for a second there actually says that's not a bad idea and he might take it. Um, but then he decides against it. He says the Canadians should have to come willingly. We can't just take them. Uh, and everyone thinks the Canadians will join the United States at some point during this time of uh, the 19th century. Everyone worries that the British are, are not going to allow this to happen. The Canadians aren't going to allow this to happen. And if they can't come to some kind of agreement, there is a worry that the United States and Great Britain might have to go to war with one another. So much so that when Grant, and I mentioned Santo Domingo earlier, is considering annexing Santo Domingo uh, so that you could have an American presence in the Caribbean. One of the reasons that he gives for annexing San Domingo is we need an American presence, a Navy presence, because there's a possibility that we could go to war with Great Britain. And if we go to a war with Great Britain, um, Texas and Florida would be cut off from New York unless we had an American presence in the Caribbean. But once the tribunal makes the, the judgment of the $15 million, everyone agrees to it. And 
war is not an option. Great Britain pays the $15 million. From that point forward, I would say the United States and Great Britain are, are on good terms to this day. Grant's first term is also consumed by another foreign policy situation, the battle over Santa Domingo, or as we know it today, the Dominican Republic. This Caribbean nation was offered to be sold to the U.S. in 1869. And Grant's seriously considering it. I was shocked to learn there was a, a plan that goes to a vote to annex the DR with you know intentions to give it a path to statehood. The Dominican Republic nearly became a U.S. state. How would that have changed U.S. history? or U.S.'s desire to annex more territory in North America and the Caribbean. We asked Ryan Sims to break down the story of Ulysses S. Grant and the nation of Santo Domingo. Uh, Santo Domingo now is the Dominican Republic. Grant actually does see statehood for um, the Dominican Republic or Santo Domingo. Uh, it, it kind of gets dropped on his desk in 1869 as soon as he becomes president that there is an effort by some kind of American adventurers down there to um, assist Santo Domingo being annexed to the United States with a path towards statehood. Uh, Grant, um, again, I mentioned the, Grant is a civil rights president who believes in the equality of all men. And one of the things he wants to do is prove that Reconstruction can work by bringing in non-white citizens to the country. Um, and Santo Domingo is a way to do that. Prior to this, the United States would annex nations and the, the people of those nations were not brought into the body politic. They weren't considered citizens, they weren't allowed to vote, they weren't anything. But what Grant saw was that this would be a perfect position for the United States to have a foothold in the Caribbean. It would be a naval presence, an economic presence. It would be a place where the United States could actually champion the cause of liberty because Cuba was nearby. There was still slavery in Cuba and in Puerto Rico. And Grant wanted to end slavery in the Western Hemisphere, right? Because where was the United States getting all of its sugar and all of its uh, tropical goods? Cuba. And Grant would say, we can't sit here and talk about how great we are that we've ended slavery in the United States and then still support slavery by getting all of our goods from Cuba. But if we annex the Dominican Republic, we can grow all of that stuff all, all by ourselves. And then slavery has to end in Cuba because we, we're the ones that buy all of their goods. But Grant wants to bring all of these, all of the Dominicans, particularly the Dominican men, I should say, in as citizens. So we're talking about probably 100, 130,000 new voters. Those will also be Republican voters, which is what he wants. It immediately gets, um, resistance from the Senate. He brings it to Charles Sumner. Charles Sumner tells him, uh, I support everything that this administration does. So Grant thinks Sumner is going to say yes. And then Sumner votes no. And that immediately starts their feud again. Grant goes to the Senate to lobby for it, which is a, something a president doesn't do, even though he has the right to, but doesn't do. But Grant is able to get the Senate to put together a commission to ascertain what the Dominicans themselves want. And on that commission is Frederick Douglass. And that commission goes down to Santo Domingo. When it comes back, Frederick Douglass agrees that annexing Santo Domingo is the right decision. And this causes a, a fracture between the relationship between Frederick Douglass and Charles Sumner as well. And Douglass then positions his support behind Grant. Eventually, the vote is no. 
the vote was actually 28 to 28 in the Senate, which is very close. But ultimately, a two-thirds majority is required to approve the treaty to annex Santo Domingo or the Dominican Republic. It was a stinging defeat to Grant and a win for Sumner and his liberal Republican allies. But one major victory for the Grant administration was the ratification of the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment ratified in 1870 after pressure from the Grant White House on the southern states that were holding up its ratification. The 15th Amendment prohibits the federal government in each state from denying a citizen the right to vote based on that citizen's, quote, race, color, or previous condition of servitude. We talked to Ron White about the passage of the 15th Amendment and really how the battle over voting rights still goes on today. Well, the 15th Amendment does give the right to vote, and and this was high-minded, and Republicans were the ones who put this through, and actually it became a litmus test for the ability of former Confederate states to rejoin the Union. But then very quickly, uh, what had been the system of slavery became a system of segregation, ultimately becoming, by the 1880s and 1890s, what became known as Jim Crow. And so Grant believed that the Republican Party had a real place in the South, and part of that party were African Americans. And so he wanted, again, to defend the voting rights. But part of the Ku Klux Klan and part of these terrorist organizations was to so intimidate African Americans that they would not vote. Not to say that there wasn't corruption in the South, not to say there wasn't corruption among Republicans, both white and black, but the attack on voting rights, it's so fascinating that we're seeing this right at the at this same moment as we're speaking. That's been a continual problem. We like to tout the fact that we're a democracy with the right of every person to vote, and yet there seems to be on and on again attacks on voting rights. Grant is climbing national perception in large part for his war rage against the Ku Klux Klan and its terrorist campaign against African Americans and their sympathizers in the South. Grant was attempting to continue Reconstruction in the view he thought Lincoln would have conducted it. He appoints an an African-American Ebenezer Bassett to be the first U.S. minister, the ambassador to Haiti. He's appointing African-Americans to positions in the federal government. Black politicians are winning elections. Ryan discussed with me the lieutenant governor and two U.S. senators elected in Grant's time in Mississippi were were African-Americans. Multiple U.S. congressmen in many southern states are elected to Congress. This progress is fought against by the white leagues and the vicious militant arm of the movement, the KKK. The violence was constant, especially around election time. Philip Sheridan, who Grant sent to Louisiana to be the Reconstruction governor, noted that in seven years' time since the end of the war, he was able to count over 2,000 African Americans living in Louisiana that had been killed by whites. 2,000 people. And the vast majority of those murders went unprosecuted or the perpetrators were acquitted by southern juries it was clear to grant that the only way the federal government could stop this was by prosecuting the clan that seems simple to us today in a time of federal intervention and legal and criminal justice affairs but at the time it was not it was radical and their calls for his impeachment as a tyrant but grant stood firm and it's why i've grown to very much respect his presidency and hope this episode encourages more americans to understand the importance of grant's struggle for racial equality how it was discounted and overlooked for many of the racist reasons we discussed earlier. We asked Ron White to discuss Ulysses S. Grant's war against the Ku Klux Klan in the 1870s. Yes, well, the Klan began very quickly after the Civil War, 1866, simply as a social club. 
former Confederate soldiers, but quickly it transformed itself into what today we would call a, a terrorist organization, a kind of an advocacy of white supremacy. And through beatings and hangings and all sorts of things, they intimidated blacks first in Tennessee where it was born and then across the South, and uh, it became a terror in, in the South. Well, when the army, which was still in the South, arrested these Klansmen, and there were other sort of white leaguers, as they were called, and put them before local or even state courts, again and again and again they were acquitted. So Grant finally decided, risking the fear that he would be called a military dictator, that if the local and state authorities would not act, the federal authority must act. So he stepped forward to begin to prosecute the Klan. And what's interesting is that the Republicans right after, in at the end of Lincoln's term and right after, passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were the so-called Reconstruction Amendments, and they were to give the African American, the freedmen, the right to vote, the right to participate in society. But, you know, we grow tired of well-doing, and very quickly the Republican Party began to retreat from that defense of the African Americans. And the interesting story to me was, as the Republican Party retreated, Grant stepped forward. And so he does deserve the title as the last American president before we really get to Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. For 90 years, we sort of were almost silent about the rights of African Americans. He was the last president to defend their rights. Grant faces re-election in 1872. He squares off with Horace Greeley, a famous newspaper publisher. We discuss the election of 1872 and how Grant faces a candidate that has unified support of not just the Democrats, but also the so-called liberal Republicans. And we discuss Grant's 1872 re-election with Ryan Sims from Mississippi State University. In 1872, he's running against Horace Greeley, who is the editor of the Tribune, the New York Tribune. He's a newspaper editor. Greeley is a liberal Republican, is the nominee of the liberal Republican Party. Um, the liberal Republicans were a, a number of Republicans who kind of broke away from the Republican Party because they were unhappy with Grant in his first term. Um, they saw, they, they charged Grant with um, a number of things. One, they thought that Grant was just doling out offices to his cronies and friends. Granted, this is what you did. From the 21st century, it sounds terrible, although it still happens. Charles Sumner and Grant hate each other, just yeah. despise each other. Charles Sumner is a New England, Harvard-educated, the great eloquent orator of abolitionist man. And then here comes Grant, this country bumpkin military man from the middle of nowhere, Ohio, which at that time was the West, right? They used to call Ohio the West back then. Because of that, Carl Schurz, because he's Charles Sumner's basically right-hand man, um, jumps onto that as well. So when Schurz establishes what's known as the Liberal Republican Party, they're also against Grant's Reconstruction policy. Um, they just want reconciliation of the states and then that's it. They're not for the equal rights for African Americans. They just want everything to go back to the way it was before the war. So Horace Greeley is able to get the nomination from uh, the Liberal Republican Party. And then the Democrats also nominate Horace Greeley as well. It doesn't go well for Horace Greeley. And Grant has near 99% 
support from African American uh, African Americans who vote almost wholly Republican. He defeats Greeley fairly soundly. It's a pretty easy, not only in the popular vote, but also in the electoral, electoral college. Greeley does, I think Greeley dies three weeks after the election. Yeah. So he wasn't going to make it anyway. Um, but the, the election was supposed to be a referendum on Grant's corruption as a president and Grant's reconstruction policy. If it was a referendum on both of those things, the American public, particularly with African-American support, deemed uh, that they were in support of that. Grant wins huge with 56% of the vote in 1872. It's the highest winning percentage from Andrew Jackson in 1828 to Theodore Roosevelt's election in 1904. It's a 76-year gap between that kind of landslide win. He wins 31 of 37 states. He wins every northern state and 8 of the 11 states in the former Confederacy. His electoral college numbers and this smashing victory, 286 to 66. reason for Grant having such low numbers is the number of political scandals involving people in his administration, many of which were in the second term. Trusted cabinet members and close aides are involved, as well as the Panic of 1873, which we'll discuss more in a later Rutherford B. Hayes episode, but a serious economic recession grips the country during Grant's second term. One quarter of the workers in New York City are unemployed. Half of the railroads go bankrupt or go into receivership. The consolidation of bigger businesses buying up or putting smaller businesses out of business. That happens during the Panic of 1873 and during Grant's administration. It's what starts this world of trusts and monopolies in American business, a problem we're still dealing with today. We talked to Ron White to discuss the large number of troubling scandals in Grant's time. Few, if any, are actually attributed in history or by the public at the time to Grant. Grant himself was largely you know, not found to be involved. But his military-style leadership with a lot of delegation and faith in his officers to carry out these missions um, really led to large amounts of graft, certainly led to this legacy of scandal in the Grant administration, and will likely keep him from ascending to the highest echelons of the presidential rankings. Well, this was one of the real uh, dilemmas that I faced in trying to understand. I, I had known something, obviously, of Grant as the Union commander in my biography of Abraham Lincoln, but I didn't really know anything about him initially as president. And so often his low ranking, one of the reasons for his low ranking, which is now changing, by the way, was the scandals. They almost all took place in his second term, although the, the gold ring, the kind of attempt to corner the gold market in the stock market, took place in 1869 as he was just beginning. And why did this happen kind of puzzled to me. How, how could a man who seemed to be such a good judge of leaders and character in the Civil War, he, he could figure out that William Rosecrans was not a good general. He figured out who was and who wasn't. Well, several, I think, possible answers or options are, first of all, he didn't really know many of these men. Cabinets, especially in those days, were balanced by geography. Oh, we need someone from New England. We need someone from the West. Oh, we better have someone from the South. And then, as you suggest in your question, his style in the military was to delegate. So he didn't often pay, as he should have, close attention to what some of these men were doing. Also, I'm afraid that sometimes power corrupts. 
so that, for example, Orville Babcock, who was one of his uh, military leaders in the Civil War, seemed to be corrupted by once he got to Washington. But Grant couldn't see this and, and, and didn't want to see this. And so he, he somehow wasn't willing to understand that these people were corrupt around him. So there was the whiskey scandal where people were uh, making profits by charging the uh, undue amounts to the federal government to get tax refunds. Uh, there were scandals with Indians again, where uh, people were getting kick kickbacks by appointing Indian agents. There was probably half a dozen different scandals. But remarkably, and this is what I wanted to say at the end, was I think presidents in their terms of office, especially as they complete the term of office, they either have a reservoir of goodwill or ill will. Grant had such a reservoir of goodwill, I'm totally convinced he could have won a third term if he had chosen to do so. That even with these scandals, no one ever thought that Grant was himself a part of these. They criticized him for not paying attention, but they viewed his integrity, his truthfulness, as continuing on. They never doubted it. Grant leaves office after his second term in March of 1877. Ryan Sems calls him the only true civil rights president from Lincoln until Truman in the 1940s and 50s. We talk about the reasons why he was deemed a failure among historians for over 100 years. And those reasons are actually totally false. And it takes many decades and great books like American Ulysses by Ron White to change the national perception of a president. We talk with Ryan Sems about Grant's legacy and how in the final year of his presidency, eventually, he mostly has to abandon Reconstruction. Every southern state was absorbed back into the Union by the end of his term, but the Grant administration can no longer back the rights of the freedmen themselves. Before we ask Ryan to discuss his legacy, this is a topic which you know we'll examine in the Hayes episode later this summer. Hayes has always been cited by historians uh, from Delaware, Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes, the president who would follow Grant, as the person who single-handedly ended Reconstruction. That's just a lazy take on U.S. history and not nearly... Uh, as simplistic as that. Ryan will discuss the country's fatigue with the Reconstruction efforts in the South and Grant's, again, continued rise in the presidential rankings. Well, Grant, really, until President Truman, is the only president who does anything on behalf of African Americans. In terms of, of passing meaningful and enforcing meaningful legislation on behalf of African American rights, uh, enforcing the 14th and 15th Amendments, enforcing the anti-Ku Klux Klan uh, Acts. Grant's administration is a civil rights administration where he really truly believes in the equality of African-American men. Because of this, he is demonized by the, the, the lost cause. And what the lost cause and the historians of the lost cause in the late 19th through the 20th century who demonized his presidency and called him a failure. The failures they saw were what we would now in the 21st century see as positive gains. Right. Though that, you know, he is giving African Americans the right to participate in politics. These historians of the late 19th and early 20th century saw those as failures. So they then deemed his presidency a failure. African Americans were not ready to participate in politics, these people said. Um, so Grant 
put them into the politics too soon. So that was a failure, they said. Well, that's just totally untrue. What, what happened was is they, they got into politics. The former Confederate Southern Democrats weren't happy about that. So they used violence and intimidation and everything they could to undermine them. Grant then uses military force when he has to, to kind of support African-American rights. And so then he's seen and deemed a dictator by then these same people. Historians are reevaluating them. So whether it's Ron White or Ron Chernow or Joan Wall, they're looking at that civil rights record as the positive that it should be looked at. But there's still the problem with at the end of his presidency, he does sort of back off and kind of give up. Um, and I think part of that is exhaustion. Um, he did write a letter to the governor of, of Mississippi where he said the entire American public is um, tired of these autumnal outbreaks of violence, right? Um, or something to that effect. And, and he was right. Like every autumn, every, every October, violence occurs. Well, why? Because it's election time, right? You know, and eventually he just, he stopped sending the support. But really the reason he stopped sending the support, the support is he doesn't have a Republican controlled Congress any longer. It's a Democrat controlled Congress by the time uh, you get to his final years and he can't get the support from Congress to send the troops down like he used to when he had a Republican controlled Congress. One of my favorite stories about Grant is his famous world tour he takes in 1877, just two months after leaving office. Grant and Julia take a trip from, uh, around Europe that ends up being a, a two-year uh, round-the-world trip. There's a great book by John Russell Young, a journalist who was on that trip with the Grants, called Around the World with General Grant, published in 1879. It's a travel log of this historic trip. We have stories about it um, that we'll share in our First Ladies episode later this year, but we also talk with Ron White about Grant's famous trip across the globe. Grant always loved to travel. He he said, I don't ever want to take the same route twice. He viewed travel as educational, and so he thought he would travel simply as a private citizen, taking Julia and their youngest son. And when he arrived in Liverpool, he was overcome. People were treating him like this great hero. And wherever he spoke in England, people, thousands and thousands of people came out to hear him. And then he was able to continue that trip on into Europe and finally through the Middle East to what we now call Israel, uh, into India, into China, and finally to Japan. And on the one hand, I think we sadly elect presidents who have no experience in foreign affairs. So one of his own sons said, he said, now my father is really prepared to be president because he learned a lot. He was in India and he saw the way the British treated the Indians and he said, well, we wouldn't do it that way. He got to China and Japan and in a fairly insightful way, he said, you know, he said, you have your own cultural values. Do not let the Europeans tell you how to run your lives. And I promise you that the United States will never do that to you. China was so impressed with him, they said, well, we've got a great dispute going on with Japan. Would you be willing to be the mediator in this dispute over four, four or five islands? Japan accepted him as a mediator. I learned after the fact that in 1912, 1912, a group of Japanese diplomats came to the United States, and when they arrived in Washington, they were asked, 
what would you like to do? They said, well, one of the main things we want to do is to visit Grant's tomb. You know, he's a hero in Japan, and we want to lay some flowers at his tomb. So Grant's tour, world tour, no one had ever done this before, two and a half years, said so much about his willingness to learn and then to appreciate people and cultures and nations different than our own. The Grants extend the trip and then tour the U.S. and the Caribbean uh, in 1879-1880. It becomes a pretty you know, rampant rumor that Grant may run again in 1880 for president for a third term. He's very popular. We talked to Ryan Sims from the U.S. Grant Presidential Library about his extended trip in and around the U.S. and North America. And Ryan takes us right up to the Republican Convention of 1880 in Chicago, Illinois, which is a story that we'll have to leave you hanging for and finish in our next episode. He starts thinking to himself, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to run for president again. And now that I've seen the world, I've got a pretty good idea of what's going on in the world and who these leaders are. And they're kind of ginning up support from the Republican Party. But they tell him, you don't need to come home too soon. You need to extend your trip. And so he gets back to San Francisco in 1879, and they say, the Republican Convention's in 1880, you know, in July of 1880, and it's, and they said, you need to keep going on your trip. So Grant spends a lot of time out west, in the American West with his wife, and he shows her where he was stationed in the 1850s and such. And they go out west and they see some of the silver mines and stuff that he's invested in. He does return home very briefly. He gets back to Philadelphia so he can say he circumnavigated the world. And then he decides to go on a tour of the American South and the Caribbean. And while he's down around the South, these Southerners are all like, I think this guy might be president again, so let's be nice to him. <laughs> um, and so in Florida, they kind of roll out the red carpet for him. He goes to Havana and he gets down there during Mardi Gras and they get you know, in Cuba and they show him a good time. Uh, he gets to Mexico and he shows his wife his exploits during the Mexican War. And then he comes back to Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. When he goes to the Mobile Cotton Exchange, they, they all very specifically say, you know, they refer to him as our next president and things like that. He returns to Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1880. One of the great myths of Vicksburg is that they never celebrated the 4th of July again after the, you know, fall of the city of Vicksburg in July 4th, 1863. One of my ways to kind of knock that down, A, of course they did, there's plenty of left evidence that they did, and B, if they were so angry about losing to Grant, why would they throw a huge parade for him in 1880 when he came to town? This is essentially a campaign tour for Grant leading up to, and then he gets to Illinois and takes a train and stops in every little town in Illinois on his way up to Chicago to what is essentially going to be the 1880 convention where he hopes to, be, to receive a third nomination for the Republican uh, presidency. A little bit of a cliffhanger for episode three there, but stay tuned. That'll be out June 7th for the conclusion of that story about Grant's attempted third term. In the summer of 1884, Grant has a very sore throat. We talked to Ryan Sims one last time about Grant's untimely illness and how his rapid decline from cancer grips the nation. I mean, one day he and Julia are sitting on the porch and he bites into a peach and he has a horrible pain in his throat. He thought he maybe bit the pit or something like that. And she convinces him to go to a doctor. And the doctor looks and says, you have throat and mouth cancer. And basically what happened is he, he had gotten to a point where he was smoking at some point 
25, 30 cigars a day. He had used, used to smoke a pipe, but um, after Fort Donaldson, he started smoking cigars because some newspaper man wrote about him smoking a cigar after the Battle of Fort Donaldson. People started sending him cigars, and then that was that, and cigars were cheaper and easier. But smoking all of those cigars just killed him, and it gave him cancer. So he starts uh, battling with cancer. This actually becomes a pretty popular news story. Newspapers are putting out reports twice a day in the morning and the evening edition. So, you know, as close to a 24-hour news cycle as you could get about reports of his condition. He's in New York for a while, and then finally they decide to take him up to upstate New York, and they take him up to Mount McGregor, where the air is a little cooler and thinner and, and better for him. This obviously is at the time when he's lost all of his money, and he's writing his famous memoirs. He eventually loses the ability to speak, um, loses the ability to drink and eat. He's wasting away um, to next to nothing. Grant, who's forever unlucky in business, is the victim of a Bernie Madoff-like Ponzi scheme from a business associate of his son, Buck, a man named Ferdinand Ward, a con man who takes and invests all of Grant's money, but he swindles Grant and many others out of their money. Grant is broke again. When you combine this with the, his so-called friends in his administration that brought all these scandals upon the Grant White House, Grant asks in 1884, how can I ever trust anyone again? Grant starts writing his memoirs for a magazine. It's not that much money, but he's desperate. His friend Mark Twain reads the draft and says, my God, this, this old soldier here, he can write. Twain convinces Grant to write his memoir in full. Twain uh, will publish it and will sell it across the door, door to door, the way like they used to sell encyclopedias when we were kids. This is all going on while Grant gets more and more sick with cancer. It's considered to be the best military memoir in American history, and it sells like hotcakes. Grant saves his family financially just before he dies. Ron White talks about the memoirs and the newer annotated versions done by the folks at the Grant Presidential Library, uh, among others. And we need to pick up a copy of those, those annotated versions that have just been done uh, upon completion of the Grant papers in recent years. We talked to Ron White about Ulysses S. Grant's famous memoirs from 1885. Well, Grant's language is plain-spoken, straightforward. He gives you the opportunity to be right in the midst of the action. It's not about himself. He's willing to give credit to others. His kind of descriptions of even the Confederate generals, uh, whether it be Robert E. Lee or Joseph Johnson, he goes out of his way almost curiously to defend George McClellan, sort of saying, well, he came to the position too young, He didn't really have the basis of experience to be successful. If he would have had more experience, he might have been successful. He has a tremendous description of Abraham Lincoln and why he thinks Lincoln is the great person of his era. And so uh, it really is a wonderful... Lots of people now are rereading this, and there's two different volumes that have come out in the last three or four years that are what are called annotated versions of the memoirs so that you have the chance to say, well, now, who was this person, or what is that battle? These are not all obviously familiar to us today, but these annotated versions give us a chance to even have even a greater appreciation of the memoirs. I really encourage anyone to read these memoirs. It will give them this sense of who Grant is, the man, and why he deserves an upgrade in our time today. Grant dies three days after completing his memoirs in a cottage in Mount McGregor in New York State. It's July 25th, 1885. He dies at the age of just 63. 
1.5 million Americans show up to view his casket, a long procession led by General Sherman, President Hayes, President Arthur, current president at the time, Grover Cleveland, even Confederate generals Simon Bolivar Buckner and Joseph Johnson follow the Grand Army Republic. He's later laid to rest at Grant's tomb on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the largest mausoleum in America. As we close on his incredible life, we asked the great Dr. Ron White Jr. about what our current politicians could learn from a humble, introverted soldier and statesman like Ulysses S. Grant. That's what we asked him. Instead, he told us a story about July 4, 1878. Grant spends a dinner in his honor in Hamburg, Germany. A toast is given by the ambassador to Germany. As we close today, we lift a glass to Ulysses S. Grant, our 18th president from Georgetown, Ohio. What we do spontaneously really reflects who we are. He didn't, he didn't have a prepared speech before a teleprompter. He just spoke spontaneously, and, and his reaction was to give credit to others. Boy, that says so much about him. Uh, on July 4th, 1878, uh, Grant was in Hamburg, Germany. And the uh, minister, we would call it minister in those days, we might call it ambassador, said, I want to lift a glass to uh, Ulysses S. Grant. This is the 4th of July. This is the man who won the Civil War. And Grant, as we've already suggested, not a good public speaker, interestingly raised his hand, so to speak, and said, may, if I may, I'd like to defer what you just said. He said, I did not win the Civil War. If this nation could be saved by one man, it is a nation not saving. Fascinating. If you want to lift a glass in tribute, may I ask you to do so to the young men who came from their farms, their villages, and their towns. They are the ones who won the Civil War every bit as much as those who were privileged to give command. Our book recommendation, obviously, is American Ulysses by Ron White. Published in 2016, it is, I consider, to be the definitive book on Grant. And sure, there was Ron Chernow's uh, Grant, which was published next year. Chernow known for writing Hamilton, the, the book that the famous play is based off of. I've read them both, and I still recommend Ron White's book. Both are New York Times bestsellers. You can't go wrong. Both are award-winning, but... White's book, although it's still 800-some pages, it, it cuts out a lot of the superfluous material used in Chernow's longer Grant biography. Longer doesn't always mean better. Uh, there's a link to buy that book in the show notes. I just bought it for my mother for Mother's Day. She was asking about a book on Grant, um, knowing that the History Channel special was coming on. So go buy that book. I was so honored he was able to join us. Also, special thanks to Ryan Sems, Associate Professor of History at Mississippi State, and the archivist of the Grant Presidential Library. We didn't have enough time to explain just how the Grant Presidential Library ended up in the South, in Starkville, Mississippi, but it's a great story and a wonderful new facility on their campus dedicated to Grant and the story of Reconstruction. I can't wait to check it out next time I'm down in the Deep South. And lastly, our friend Lee, uh, Lee Swikert from the U.S. Grant Boyhood Home and Schoolhouse. Historic sites in Georgetown, those are run in conjunction with my beloved Ohio History Connection which will soon include Grant's Tannery as a third historic site to visit there in Georgetown. Lee was incredibly knowledgeable about Grant's years in the Buckeye State. We can't wait until they're able to reopen, continue hosting events like Grant Days in Georgetown, which I vow to get to next summer. 
after it was postponed here in 2020. Go to usgrantboyhoodhome.org, link in the show notes, or just go to ohiohistory.org for the Ohio History Connection website for more information. That'll do it, guys. We are, like we said, just stunned by how many of you downloaded and listened to our William McKinley vs. the World season premiere last week. Thank you so much. Share the show on your Facebook page. Tell your friends during your next Zoom hangout about Ohio v. the World. Word of mouth is always the best way to spread the show. So please subscribe to the show on iTunes and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and somebody please follow us on Twitter at Ohio v. the World. We're back in two weeks with episode three about my favorite person who was an Ohio president, James Garfield, will take on the world. His dramatic, surprising journey to the White House and how he could have been a great president only to be assassinated in 1881. We're joined by a, a number of great guests for that one, including my favorite current historian, Candace Millard, the author of the award-winning Destiny of the Republic in 2011 about James Garfield and his tragic and really crazy death in office. So stay healthy, stay safe, uh, and we'll see you in two weeks for episode three. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.